Hello and welcome to episode three of our Catechism Thursdays. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with one of your co-hosts, Peter Bell. Again, we are going through the Heidelberg Catechism through this shorter form Thursday series on top of the Monday longer form series. And today we cover questions six through eight. So we're going to start with question number six. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? Answer, by no means, but God created man good and after his own image in righteousness and true holiness, that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify him and praise him. So what Orsinus first asks in his commentary about this question, again, Orsinus wrote the Heidelberg Catechism and then wrote a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism to help us understand this. So he asks, what was the first state in which God originally created man? Number one, God created man without sin. He created him perfect. Number two, that we may see how far we have fallen. So we see the perfection we were created in to have communion, to live with our God. And we have fallen from this perfection. Number three, we acknowledge the greatness of the benefits we have received by the knowledge of the gospel. Number four, we may want to recover the dignity and happiness we lost. And this comes from that heart we've been given through the gospel, through the obedience of the one who under the law perfectly fulfilled all the demands and gave us his record. And number five, we are thankful to God for his restoration. And so we ask, as Zacharias or Sinus asked, what end did God create man? He answers, for praise and thanksgiving, love and obedience, which consists in a proper discharge of the duties which we owe to God and our fellow men. And then he asks next, what is this image? And this image is a hard thing to define. And I think he gives a fantastic definition. I'll add a little bit to it at the end. So this image is the spiritual and immortal, so forever, nature of the soul, purity and integrity of the whole man, perfect blessedness and joy, together with the dignity and majesty of men, in which he excels and rules over all other creatures. And as we see in the Genesis account, this image is to image God in his perfection, image God in his creation, image God in his rule, image God in his dominion. Just again, using those words that we see in the Genesis 1 account. And what's interesting is the words that are used is what we see in other cultures around this time that Israel was, when Moses was writing this to Israel where the word image is the same word used for a statue that somebody would create to show that this is the person who is imaging the gods. And so it's 
kind of a more pagan or non-Christian context. But when Moses uses this word, he used to say, the God we see, the God we know, the God that we have communion with through Jesus Christ, we know him and we rule in his image. So it's not just that we know him, it's actually that we are ruling because of him. We rule in his image. We mirror him. And then he asked next, to what extent is it lost and what is left? So first, the incorporeal, rational, and immortal substance of the soul is still within us. So we don't lose this image. Number two, our knowledge of God, however, is lessened. So this perfect communion that Adam and Eve had with God before the fall, we have lost that perfect walk, that perfect communion with God, though we still have a trace of his knowledge. And we see that in Romans 1. Third, traces of moral virtue is within us. And we see that in how society works. We see that people know internally that murder is wrong. We know that lying is wrong. We know that bearing false witness is wrong. We know the things that society knows is wrong. They know it's wrong because the image is still left within us. Number four, enjoyment of temporary blessings. And this, again, is because we bear this image with God that we enjoy these blessings. And number five, certain dominion over other creatures. So we still enjoy this mandate. We still have this mandate given to us from Genesis 1 to 3. And the word subdue and dominion is, again, to image what God has done in this creation. He's given us this same power, this same authority to exercise God's rule, God's authority, God's presence on this earth. And then he last asks, how is the image of God restored in us? And I love this answer. The Father restores the image through the Son's obedience and redemption and the Spirit who guarantees our inheritance. So the image is perfected in us when the obedience and the perfect vector of the Son is applied to us by the Spirit, who is that new creation in the future, who's giving us that creation now. Then he moves on to question number seven. Whence, then, proceeds this de depravity of human nature? So what becomes, what is, what is the result of this human depravity? He answers, <clears throat> from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. So Adam and Eve, our first parents, in their sin, we also sinned. Not their sin is just given to us later on. We actually sinned in them, and which is why we have this human nature of sin. And sin is not just something inherent in us. Sin, as we'll see later on, is a result of our disobeying the law. It's not inherent badness in us. It is we reject God's law. And so what was the sin of our first parents? The desire to call what we want good and what God calls bad. 
So we reverse it. God calls things good and other things bad. We reversed that order. He called the tree good to eat. It looks good, but he told us not to eat of it. There was nothing in the tree itself, but he told us not to eat it. And we decided in Adam and Eve and our first parents that, yes, we did want to eat that tree, and we did. It is transgressing his word in pride. Then he defines sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. It is not doing what the law tells us to do or doing what the law tells us not to do or whatever is in opposition thereto. Whether it be the wants of righteousness or an inclination or action contrary to the divine law and so offending God and subjecting the creature to his eternal wrath unless forgiveness be obtained for the sake of the Son of God, Son of God, our mediator. And so what becomes of us, what effect does sin have on us now? He answers with, number one, exposure to death. Two, sin that consumes the race of mankind. So it affects all of us equally. Three, actual sins coming for that first sin. So the first sin was eating of the tree, was saying, yes, I want to eat of this tree, even though I was told by God not to. And so actual sins are those sins that we experience in the here and now of lying, of adultery, of deceit, of doing what we're told not to do, of not doing what we're told to do. All the things that we see in our life today, those are called actual sins. And then number four, all sins inflicted upon us as punishments for sin. So whether it be the punishments that we receive for our sin or other people's sin against us. And so he ends question seven, his commentary in question seven, by asking this question that we've all asked ourselves. I've asked myself, and I'm sure you've asked yourself as well. Why did God allow this sin? And so he gives two parts. Part one, he says, so that he might exhibit the weakness of the creature when man is left to himself alone. There was no help for Adam by God. It was completely on man himself. And he was created in perfection. So man had the capacity to do what was right, to say yes to the law of God. He had that capacity. And he didn't do it. So it is, we see what man is left to completely on his own. And then the second part. <clears throat> that God might display his goodness, mercy, and grace in saving through Christ all them that believe and exercising justice and power in punishing those who are unrepentant, who do not have Christ for their sins. So we see that first part, and then that second part is so that we might see God's glory in his saving sinners, in his son Christ, and exercising justice on those who do not have Christ. And the justice is not one person gets justice those who are unrepentant and have their sins still on their accounts, and one person who doesn't get justice, who have Christ, both get justice. 
One's justice is based on Christ's obedience, his perfection. And the other's justice is because they don't have that obedience. Both judgments are just. One is based on perfection. One is based on they don't have that perfection. But both are perfectly just. And then the last question for today. Question number eight. <coughs> are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? He answers, indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So he says, Zacharias or Zinus, the principal question and object of this discussion is whether man can now, in the same way in which he separated himself from God, also return to him by his own strength, except of the grace that is offered him by God, and recover for himself the position which has been lost by sin. And then he answers this question. No work is acceptable and pleasing to God under his law can be performed by anyone without regeneration in the special grace of the Holy Spirit. Yet all actions of the will, both good and bad, are performed freely. So then he asks, what is this freedom of the will that's talked about? Or free power of choice? It is the faculty or power of willing or not willing, of choosing or rejecting, an object presented by the understanding of its own accord and without constraint. So what he's saying in this answer is, there is nothing that is pushing you either way towards one decision or another. And if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, that is always the case. There is always something pushing us towards one decision or the other decision, whether with it, whether it's within ourself or it's outside of ourself. There's always something pushing us towards the decision. And this is asking, or this is telling us that perfect free will is there's nothing pushing us one way or the other. And so he asks, is there any freedom of the human will? And he actually answers, yes, by virtue of our creation, the image of God, and two, from the definition of the freedom which belongs to man, acts upon deliberation, freely knowing, and desiring or rejecting this or that object. And that's because of that first transgression, because of that first law given to Adam and Eve in the garden, do not eat of this tree, or if you do, you shall surely die. They had perfectly free will in order to, yes, obey the commandment, or no, eat of the tree. And again, we know what happened. So he ends his commentary on question eight by asking, what kinds of free will do we have? So this is kind of an odd question, but I think his answers to this are really helpful. They're helpful for me, and I hope they're helpful for you as well. So the first kind 
is before the fall, the will that we have before the fall. And this is, we have the perfect knowledge of God and obedience by our own voluntary will. So think Adam and Eve. This is the first kind. They had no evil. They were perfectly righteous. They were in the garden. They knew God perfectly as much as God had revealed to them. The second kind is that of the fallen human being. So think right after their fall, right after they ate of the tree and God came down in judgment. So he gives us this answer. We do act freely, but we are disposed and inclined to obey that which is evil and can do nothing but sin. So we have this will, but we only ever choose sin. And sin, again, is not just some internal thing that we have. It is we only ever act contrary to the law. The law tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, like we saw last week, as Jesus gave us the law, the Ten Commandments, in two very succinct, concise commandments. We can't do that after the fall and without a heart transformed by God. The third kind is which belongs to us as regenerated, but not yet perfected and glorified. We do that which is good because of the special grace of the Spirit through the planting of a new heart, think Jeremiah 31, that gives us Christ's perfect, obedient record under the law. So this is us now as justified believers. We have Christ's obedience given to us, credited to our bank accounts. His perfect obedience, we are right in the eyes of the Lord. We can approach him because we are made perfected in Christ's obedience, applied to us by the Spirit, but we have not yet been glorified. That means we have not yet entered the gates of heaven. We have not yet entered into the presence of God in that eternal way, which leads us to our last one. The fourth is our state in perfection, glorified. We will only ever choose the good according to the law. That's what we have to look forward to. That's why sin in this world as regenerated believers, as justified believers, those looking towards the good and the perfect to come, we will one day never be able to sin. And for those of you who are listening, who are not yet believers, who do not believe in Christ, all you are capable right now is sin. And that's not because you're a bad person. That's not because you want to do things that are only ever bad and kill people and lie. It's because the law is our standard. The law of Christ, the law of God is our standard. He tells us those Ten Commandments and Christ gives us the two packaged up well. You can't follow that. But there is hope. That third and fourth one, those third and fourth parts of the will, you have that to look forward to. Christ comes, gives you his record. 
you don't do anything but believe. And one day, you too will no longer be able to sin and will only be perfect forever. I'll see you guys next week for Lord's Day number four.